to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Well now, there is, as you would realize, an historical background to this chapter, and we need to grasp it just a little before we are able to study the chapter properly. After the death of Solomon and the division of the kingdom which we've talked about before into the north with the ten tribes, the most influential one being Ephraim and the south being the two tribes usually called Judah, the two resultant kingdoms of Israel as they were sometimes called and Judah the two kingdoms were often at war with each other. This was particularly true under this king Ahaz of Judah, of whom we read just now. Remember we mentioned that Isaiah, the king whose death occurred just at the time when Isaiah had his vision in chapter 6, Isaiah was a great and prospering king under whom the nation had increased and prospered and grown strong. Well, under Ahaz, the kingdom in Judah began to weaken because he was a weak king in every sense and uh, his enemies began to recognize this. Now Israel in the north increasingly became corrupted. They became corrupted spiritually and they became corrupted nationally and politically and they began to enter into alliance with the pagan nation of Syria or Aram as it is called in our reading this evening. The southern kingdom had the advantage of having the capital, the religious capital of Jerusalem and the central place of worship in the temple in their kingdom. And as the decline took place in the north and as the northern kingdom became polluted with uh, pagan worship, many of the people from the north uh, migrated to the south uh, in order to enable them to worship uh, truly. If you look back to um, 2 Chronicles chapter 11 and uh, verse 16 this kind of thing appears to have been happening. 2 Chronicles 11 16 uh, those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, three years, walking in the ways of David and Solomon during this time. Now that was happening, apparently there are signs of it here and there, that those who really sought the Lord, those who still had a heart for God and began to feel uneasy in the situation where they saw pagan influences being brought into the worship in the northern kingdom, they began to migrate towards the south. But both in the north and in the south, 
the great issue which presented itself again and again in all sorts of circumstances to these two divided nations was whom would they trust? Where would they place their confidence for their future, for their needs, for their security perhaps, above everything else? Because in the Middle East at this particular time, security was the great issue. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel answered that by allying with Syria. And you will notice how uh, that is described for us in verse 2 of chapter 7. Now, the house of David was told. The house of David really refers to Judah. It's a kind of phrase some people have suggested, a bit like the White House in America. You know, they informed the White House. The house of David is more a family expression than that, but it is a, a, a name for Judah. The house of David was told Aram, or Syria, has allied itself with Ephraim. So the northern kingdom had made an alliance with this pagan nation. And uh, Ahaz is faced with this fact that Ephraim, the northern kingdom or Israel, has become his enemy and they have now allied with this external power of Syria or Aram. And Ahaz is therefore faced in a special sense with this question, where will his confidence be placed? Where will he put his trust? In what will he confide as he is faced with this situation when the northern kingdom and Syria have become confederate with each other and are now threatening the south? Uh, and you will notice uh, how later on in the chapter in verse 6 um, we read about the plots that they made. Verse 5, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. So there is a confederate plot against Judah from the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Syria. And Ahaz and the people of the southern kingdom are faced with this question. Where is our confidence to be placed? Where is our security going to come from? What does it depend upon? Whom do we depend upon for our future as a nation? For our continuance and for the preservation of Jerusalem, for example? What do we depend upon for our security? It was a question of national and indeed spiritual security. Well now notice how uh, Ahaz reacts. The hearts of Ahaz, verse 2, and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They became profoundly alarmed. They trembled at uh, this news. Now uh, that's Ahaz and the people of Judah's reaction. And you notice how God sends Isaiah specifically to calm Ahaz's spirit and to lead him to the place where his confidence ought to be in such a time of crisis as this, 
When the great issue is his security and the security of his people, and when he is in a place of danger and threat, what does God say to Isaiah to say to Ahaz? Well, he tells him in verse 3, Go out you and your son, Shear Jashub. Now, uh, I was saying that that very name is a sign, it is a symbolic name, and it is a, a symbol because of what it says. It says, a remnant will return. That is, God is saying, I will never leave myself without a people. No matter what happens to Judah, I will have my people. And if my people listen to my voice, if they put their confidence in me, a remnant will remain in Judah. And Isaiah's son, as it were, by his very presence, spoke this message to Ahaz. And then the words that he was commanded to say to him in verse 4, Say to him, Be careful. Be calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two. And then he describes the two leaders of the kingdoms in derogatory language. Um, I think it's J.B. Phillips in his translation who suggests it's the fag ends, these smoldering stubs of firewood, he says. And it really is the same kind of derogatory statements, these fag ends of humanity. That's what he's saying. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. It is true, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart, and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Now, that's the voice of man, you see. Perhaps more deeply, it is the voice of the prince of darkness. This is the powers of darkness. It is the very prince of hell himself who is set against God's people. And they say, let's rend them apart. Let's destroy Judah. And they are going down in order to do that. Now that is the voice of the godless. And Ahaz's reaction is, of course, that he's trembling. Now what does God say? God says, be calm. Be quiet. Be still. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. And the reason? Well, he says, first, first reason is that in the presence of the sovereign Lord who is going to speak in a moment, they are but stubs of firewood. He said, do not magnify them to a place of greatness that they do not really deserve. They are in the presence of God, but stubs of firewood. And whatever they may plan and plot, there is something else that needs to be taken into account. Now, what needs to be taken into account? This is how you get a right world view, my Christian brothers and sisters. This is how you see the situation in your own personal life, in the pressures and warfare that you are engaged in, in all the pressures that come upon the church of Jesus Christ down through history, in every threat that you can hear against the cause of God and the gospel. Isaiah says, The sovereign Lord 
has something to say. The plottings and plannings of men say this. Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet, verse 7, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now he says two simple things. It will not take place. It will not happen. Now the great question is, you see, whose voice was Ahaz going to listen to? The sovereign Lord had spoken. And man was plotting and planning. And the sovereign Lord said, it will not take place, it will not happen. The head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is only resin. In other words, here again in the presence of God, mere man is but a smoldering stub of firewood. The head of Ephraim, verse 9, is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. And notice the prophecy at the end of verse 8. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. So this is what God has said. Now here's the great issue in the end of verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, that is, if you do not believe God, and not all the threatenings and cries of men and demons. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, you see the point. Ahaz, as we'll discover in just a moment, Ahaz thought that by doing a bit of plotting and planning himself, as the man who was in charge of God's people, he would be able to secure the future of Judah. I'll tell you how he did that in a moment. But that's what he was doing. He said, I've got my own plan and my own plot. And God said to him, you will not stand at all if you don't stand firm in faith. If you do not throw your lot in with God. If you don't take your stand on his spoken word, you'll collapse forever. Now that is the watershed that Ahaz had reached. And it really was a watershed in his own personal life, in the life of Judah. It was a moment of immense critical significance for him and for Judah and for all God's people. In whom were they going to put their trust? In human plans or in divine promises. Now, Ahaz decided that he was going to go his own way. And I'll tell you how he did that now, just as I promised. 2 Kings 16 you need to look back to for this. Because, of course, there's an historical background and you need to see the historical background. It's at 2 Kings 16, verse 7. 2 Kings 16, verse 7. 
Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal, slave. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now what did he do? Well, Ephraim, Israel, had made a plot or a pact with Syria. Now Judah, under Ahaz, makes a plot or a pact with Assyria, much greater country with much greater military strength. And notice what he does. He's selling his soul. He's really selling his soul to Assyria. Listen to this. He says in verse 8, we read in verse 8 rather, Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He did, deported its inhabitants to Ker and put resin to death. Uh, now we'll come back to that in a minute or two. But you, you see what Ahaz has done. He is in a great pickle because Syria and Israel in the north whom he feared were coming against him. So Ahaz goes off to Assyria, the other greater power that they all feared, and says, I'll make it worth your while if you'll come and get us out of this mess. Somebody has suggested, I think quite vividly and, and truly, that it's a bit like a mouse Ahaz, being attacked by two rats, Israel and Syria, calling for help from the cat, Assyria. And you know what happens, of course. The cat will come, but devour them all. That's exactly what happened. And why did he do this? Because he put his confidence in man rather than in God. You know, there is a profound lesson here. I think I have seen people reach this kind of watershed in their own lives or even in a ministry or in the history of a church when people have been faced with this issue whom are we going to trust and put our confidence utterly in for our future? And sometimes the answer is, well, we have seen the machinations of the godless. We have listened to their plotting and their planning and we have watched how successful they have become and we'll put our trust in the same thing. As far as the church is concerned, you can tell where its confidence is. And you don't need any fancy barometers or anything else of the kind. You just need to go and count the proportion of people who attend the prayer meeting. That's what you do. And that's a pretty good guide as to where our confidence is. You say that's far too statistical. But it's very practical 
and very biblical and very logical too, isn't it? Where is our confidence? Is it in another Assyria? Well, you know, there is a hymn which puts it so crisply and clearly. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Now that's a principle that, as I say, really is the watershed of life for so many people at some stage. Well now, Ahaz is directly challenged by God in verse 12, uh, verse 11 rather, over this. When again the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said to him, Ask the Lord your God for a sign. It's true, isn't it, that what God is really doing with Ahaz is pleading with him to pray. He says, Ask the Lord and ask him for a sign. Ask him to do something for you. Whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights, he will stoop down. He has no need to give us signs, of course. He has given us his word and his promises, and that's enough. But he is ready to come to you in his grace and to give you a sign of his purposes and promises. And Ahaz says, oh no, I, I won't ask God for a sign, he says. And then he realizes, I think, that that sounds bad. God has said, ask for a sign. He says, no. And then he says, uh, quoting from Deuteronomy, uh, I wouldn't put the Lord to the test, he says. But you know, the one thing Ahaz couldn't afford, knowing what he was in the process of doing, was to have a sign which would demonstrate the fact that God was right and he was wrong. That's why I didn't want the sign. Well, Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. You really are not just trying my patience, but the Lord's patience. Therefore, the Lord himself, verse 14, will give you a sign. And here he gives him the sign that God intends to give to him. Um, and it's very important for us to understand as far as we can uh, what it is that Ahaz is being told by Isaiah. And we just have time to look at this briefly. You notice what he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Now, of course, where is the place that you most often hear that? It is, is it not at Christmas? And is it his son in the Messiah? And therefore, we immediately have our mind running to that. Rightly so. But one of the things we need to understand about biblical prophecy is that there is more than one level, very frequently, at which biblical prophecy applies. 
Because the prophet does not just speak about the ultimate future, as he frequently is doing in Isaiah, that is, the future that involves the Messiah and his coming. He is speaking also about the immediate future, the near-hand future. And there is little doubt that this sign was to be a sign to Judah that God had this gracious purpose uh, in his heart and that his promises were true only. In this case, the sign was going to be a sign of judgment. Now notice what the sign is. He, that is the child who is going to be born, will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Curds and honey, incidentally, is probably a diet of what we would call yogurt and honey. Um, and it's probably a diet. I, I think it's a diet that is associated with days of deprivation. Um, that seems to be the balance of uh, what one ought to think about that. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. That is, God is going to do what he has said. He will bring these kings down. That is Syria and also uh, Israel. But... Not only will that happen, verse 17, the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, the king of Assyria was going to come not just to Syria and to Israel in the north, but also to Judah in the south, as you know, he did ultimately. <coughs> and in that day, verse 18, the Lord will whistle from, for flies from the distant streams of Egypt. These are probably uh, soldiers, uh, invaders, and for bees from the land of Assyria who will sting them. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and the crevices and the rocks and the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. In that day the Lord will use a razor uh, and bring this humiliation upon you. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two goats and because of the abundance of the milk they give he will have curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels there will only be briars and thorns in other words, the land is going to be devastated. And that's what verse 24 and 25 speak about. The judgment of God coming on this land to devastate it. Why was that happening? Well, it was happening not only because God had said it will not happen, this invasion of the south by the north, because God is going to come and deal with them, and he did deal with them. But God also meant what he said when he said to Ahaz, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And so he is speaking a word of judgment 
to Judah. And Isaiah later on begins to enlarge on this word of judgment to the day when the whole of Judah went into exile and Jerusalem itself and the temple were laid waste. Now what is the sign then? Well, the sign is a sign of a child being born to a virgin. The word, some of you will know, the word that is used can be used of a young woman. Sometimes it is translated, but it is a young woman who is a virgin. Now, I think there are probably two fulfillments of this. One in the immediate future and one in the ultimate future. Some scholars think, for example, if you have got the NIV study Bible, you will see that the people who write that are amongst those who think that it is at least possible that the child who is going to be born was going to be born to Isaiah's second wife, his first wife possibly having died when Shear Jashub was born, and to his second wife there was going to be born another child, and this child would be the child referred to here. That would be the sign in the immediate future, before he was of age to choose right and wrong, uh, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So the birth of this child, and you will notice at the beginning of chapter 8, um, we read that in verse 3, I went to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Mahashalal Hashbaz. Now we'll come to the meaning of that next week when we look at chapter 8. But the point is that there are probably these two fulfillments. First, in the immediate future, but the real and ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate significance of this, of course, is that God was at, at a certain time in the future, out of the tribe of Judah, through a virgin's birth going to bring one who would be a child, who would be a sign to all generations of the God who was the sovereign Lord of salvation. In whom shall we trust for salvation then? We shall trust in the God who has given us this sign of his saving grace and saving power in the one who was born of a virgin. That is why the New Testament says it was written a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. Now you will realize that the difficulty of saying that in the immediate sense Isaiah's son was going to be the first fulfillment of that is that he was not called Emmanuel and that's just one of the difficulties that make us say we probably will never be entirely sure what the immediate fulfillment was but we are absolutely sure that what God was saying to his own people who stood upon their confidence in God was this that God was with his people he would never leave them. He would never let them go. And in this ultimate fulfillment, he came down in Jesus Christ to be Emmanuel, God with us. The eternal sovereign Lord 
coming down to be incarnate and with us. God Emmanuel. But he was God who was with his people, covenanted to them from these very earliest days. Let me finish with this application of uh, Ahaz's whole response to God, which is really so important, I think. You know, here is Ahaz quite clearly turning his back on God at this point in his history. It's an amazing thing to read. He says, no, I will not ask a sign from God. He turns his back on God and turns his face towards living by his own plans and cunning and by his own wisdom and the resources he expected to get from Assyria. You know the thing about Ahaz? He was a man who never stopped to count the long-term results of short-term decisions. We need to get hold of that, my brothers and sisters. He didn't stop to count the long-term effects of short-term decisions. The short-term decision was, there is Assyria, we will certainly be able to find them swamping my enemies. But he didn't realize what the long-term effects really were. And that spiritual short-sightedness, spiritual short-sightedness, was something for which he paid dearly in the future. A very striking thing, this whole business of who do you really believe in? Do you believe in God, people will say. Do you believe in God? My dear friends, what's our answer to that, really? What does it mean when we believe in God? Do I believe in Him in the sense that everything, my whole being, my past, my present, my future, my mind, my thinking, my plans, everything is cast utterly upon Him and I am standing upon this ground of confidence in God. John Wesley said, if a man will not believe in God, he will believe in anything. There's a lot of truth in that, if you think of it. That's why our generation believes in some of the most incredible, extraordinary rubbish that anybody could ever be asked to feed their mind on. And yet they don't believe in God. And Judah, doubtless Ahaz thought, well, can't be any harm in allying with Assyria. Listen to what happened. Uh, I'll just read it to you from 2 Kings 16 and then we must finish. King Ahaz went to Damascus and met Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. 
So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. This is in Jerusalem, in the temple. He offered up his burnt offerings and grain offering, poured out his drink offerings and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offerings on the altar. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord he brought from the front of the temple from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord and put it on the north side of the new altar. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar, that's the one that he had brought as it was designed in a pagan country. On the large new altar offer of the morning, morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering the king's burnt offering and his grain offering and the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offerings and sacrifices but I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance where is it going to go for guidance? to the pagan gods and Uriah the priest did just as King Ahaz had ordered King Ahaz took away the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands he removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base he took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord listen to this in deference to the king of Assyria. That's 2 Kings 16. You can read it all at home. In deference to the king of Assyria. That's what had happened to the spiritual life of Judah. It was going fast down the drain. And all because a man chose to trust the arm of the flesh rather than the sovereign Lord let's pray together Father we are sobered by your word and humbled before you for we are so prone to trust the arm of the flesh and to put confidence in man oh teach us your word and save us from the history of Judah. Grant, Lord, that we may rest on all your promises and glory in your greatness before which the greatness of men pales into insignificance. Make us trust you, we pray. And all this we ask for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and in his name. May his grace and peace be with us now and forevermore. Amen. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.